Welcome to Faith and Labor, which is a podcast video series exploring the history of Catholic social teachings and how it can be used to bridge divisions and guide humanity to solve the great challenges facing the working class. Hosted by John Andrichak of the Labor Lines and myself, Evan Papp of Empathy Media Lab, we discuss history, scripture, encyclicals, current events, and how faith and love is needed to strengthen solidarity and heal a world in disarray. For episode five, we will discuss Economic Justice for All, which is the pastoral letter promulgated by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops in 1986. And we're also going to be talking about an article John brought up on America's child care crisis and Catholic social teaching from American Magazine. But John, it's been a little while. How are you doing? Great, great. And honored to be here. Thank you, Evan. So right, you know, just kind of a, a point out there for people listening. We, we spoke in the past what encyclical was, you know, to cycle, to, to send out, but those are issued by, uh, the Pope, you know, the vicar of Christ on earth, as we, as the church considers the man in position, this is a pastoral letter again, by United States conference of Catholic bishops still carries a lot of weight, but it is different. And it's the first one we're covering before all the others, the first four episodes have been encyclical. So again, right, 1986, during the era of Reaganism, when neoliberalism was being established worldwide, obviously. And so the bishops right here under their heading, why did we write this? They said that they seek not to make political or ideological point, but to lift up the human and ethical dimensions of economic life, aspects too often ignored in public discussion. And the role of the church, and I think the role we like to play here in all modesty is um, we should be demanding that moral and ethical considerations enter into the discussion of public policy, but certainly economic policy, because we're talking about labor and the workplace in these pieces we put together. I did a little bit of research on the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and it I understand it took its present form in 2001 from the consolidation of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops and the United States Catholic Conference. And so it's the USCCB and it traces its origin to the National Catholic War Council, which was founded in 1917 to help administer to Catholic soldiers during World War I. And it's broken up into 15 regions and they're geographically based around the United States. And the budget for 2018 was 200 million U.S. dollars, and most of it's raised through national collections, government grants, and different assessments as well. And this is one of the most progressive documents I've ever read in any religion, and it's in 1986, and I'm just wondering, like, what has happened? It's been 34 years. Right. And right. I, I, I'm really excited to get into this tech. Right. So with that, though, I went through some of this, and the... Pastoral letter starts with, as all of the encyclicals we talked about, is the foundation of Christianity and Catholicism that in each of us is Christ. And so the fundamental humanity is that the sacredness of the human being. And in here, we're, we're talking about the economics system this country had then and then has now, where I was going to see that. The workplace, the impact, and it's very, 
very inclusive, as you see, it's an incredible document that covers immigration, uh, migrants, treatment of migrants, internationalism. It calls on unions to, to establish true international cooperation among workers, which brings to me mind Pope Francis when he says unions only fulfill half their mission when they serve their members. The other half is to serve those who have not yet been organized. So we're on that foundation of the Catholicism that each of us, uh, you know, are corrupt, you know, we're not Christ, but we, you know, we represent Christ, the sacredness of life. And, uh, and that, you know, our Christ chose to be with us, Emmanuel, Christ, you know, Christ among us, God among us, mean he's among us at the workplace. So to, to follow up with what you just said, number eight, paragraph eight, it says, as Catholics, we are heirs of a long tradition of thought and action on the moral dimensions of economic activity. The life and words of Jesus and the teaching of his church call us to serve those in need and to work actively for social and economic justice. As a community of believers, we know that our faith is tested by the quality of justice among us, that we can best measure our life together by how the poor and the vulnerable are treated. Mm -hmm. The least of us and how they're treated, that reflects the rest of society and how we're doing. And when you look on the streets of most cities these days, we're failing. <laughs> well, that, and, we, and we look at the, the, the streets and, and in the families and the social institutions. Um, and uh, in the gospel, we believe those are Christ's words. In Matthew 25, how you treat the least among us. And teacher, you know, or you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me in jail. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When did we do this for you, teacher? When you did it for the least among us, you did it for me. It it calls for, in one part, uh, it talks about the Catholic teaching judged by the son of, uh, son of man, again, Matthew 25, and that the judgment, those that how you treat your brothers and not judge according to works of charity. So uh, I find this very important, uh, Evan, that we, don't go down that path where, uh, and some, I'm, I will give credit to some who earnestly believe that, but I also believe it's a dodge by others that we could deal with all these dilemmas through charity or what's really become the stalking horse in society for the last, well, number of years with the growth of the extreme wealth is, oh, we just rely on the philanthropy of certain individuals, the Gates, the Bezos at all, right? Uh, and the church calls for that not to be the case. The quest of, for economic and social justice will always combine hope and realism. And what comes to mind for me then is when we're talking about it, economic justice for all, and the church talks about subsidiarity, where we approach a social problem at the lowest level, of social entities, lowest level government that can effectively deal with it. We have to be realistic. Again, we're not going to deal with the need, the human right for healthcare at a county level. We're not going to deal with it at a state level. And so it has, excuse me, yes, it has to be realistic uh, and not get behind uh, uh, some falsity. Oh, we just could rely on uh, charity or uh, small government action. So in, 86 paragraph, the gospel of Christ proclaims that God's love is stronger than all these forms of di diminishment. 
But then it really does talk about the material reality that we are going to be measured on. The material deprivation seriously compounds such suffering of the spirit and heart. And it goes on to say, deprivation and powerlessness of the poor wounds the whole community. The extent of their suffering is a measure of how far we are from being a true community of persons. These wounds will be healed only by greater solidarity with the poor and among the poor themselves. So as I always understood the teachings of Jesus Christ was talking about how we treat each other and the least among us. And I, I just love the fact that it, with a laser focus, has, has gone to, to focus on, on this aspect of our, our community. Absolutely. And, and I'll get into this, what I speak about that, I get into that article from America, the Jesuit magazine, the impact of the economics on uh, what so many people pay lip service to family values and the impact on, on the standards of those families, the creation of despair, when you lose hope now only for yourself, for your family, or as uh, this article states from studies, they give up on a family. They, they just can't afford a kid. You know, a, you know, a country that beats its chest and says, you know, our you know, family values is, is so fundamental, yet under current conditions, the number one reason people don't have children, no, I shouldn't say number one reason, but a major reason people do not have children is, or more children than they wish, is because of economics. Absolutely. And in paragraph 136, they stated very clearly, full employment is the foundation of a just economy. Right. And this concept of full employment that I've done a lot of research on under the New Deal, and we've been in this current ideology that says it's okay to have five, six, seven percent unemployment, that it's just natural slack that you're going to have mm -hmm. in the system. But the, the actual reality to have a, a just economy, a just nation state, is that everyone needs to have a job. And it, it goes into, it's not just reducing unemployment, because they, they state at this time in 1986 that 6 to 7% unemployment is neither inevitable nor acceptable. And in 156 paragraph, the general or macroeconomic policies of the federal government are essential tools for encouraging the steady economic growth that produces more and better jobs in the economy. We recommend that the fiscal and monetary policies of the nation, such as federal spending tax and interest rate policies, should be coordinated so as to achieve the goal of full employment. And if I may, just one more thing. They, in this letter on, in 162, they recommend increased support for direct job creation targeted on the long-term unemployed and those with special needs. So this is taking a page right out of the Civilian Conservation Corps, the WPA, to actually realize this vision that everyone who can work should be able to get a job. Right. Right. And then we see, though it's not addressed as that, we see that, well, not under the infrastructure bill per se, but under the budget resolution that's also termed Build Back Better, both are uh, languishing in our what they call communal theater of politics in, in the Capitol right now, languishing there. And we'll see, I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna be a real, a very big tell in my opinion, what comes out of this, because as I've said before, 
the clock is ticking to get a vast majority or substantial number of Americans to believe uh, that there's, hey, they have an equitable piece in the economy. Or, uh, you know, we're, or we're going down the road that we've seen elsewhere in other parts of the world. And we know how uh, catastrophic they can be. Certainly under now with all the current technology, all the current weapons we have now, if we were to get into a state like we, we saw in Europe in the 30s. Yeah, that's a, a scary thought that yeah. there are absolute consequences that we're going to be facing if people aren't feeling the impact of positive policies going into the midterms. So looking at some of these aspects too, where you have governors that are playing this game of lazy, fair, neoliberal capitalism, and that some places like in Mississippi, if you're in Mississippi, you get very low standards of any type of welfare support. And so they're also in this letter calling for national eligibility standards and a national minimum benefit level for public assistance programs so that a state can't play against other states for a race to the bottom and labor pool and that there is a floor that no American will fall below. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought that one up. And boy, we did get on that bus, did we? You know, what was it, 92, we had the Democratic Leadership Council, uh, the third way and all that, you know, the, the era of big government was over as opposed, you know, Reagan, you know, came out with, you know, the government is the problem. And then when Clinton came, he triangulated and said the era of big government is over and with welfare, quote, reform and all that. But the country was obviously completely different. And uh, what did they expect? I have to wonder, you know, all the valid criticism of the last president, and there's plenty. Sometimes I would just love to get those policy wonks in a room. It's like, well, what did you expect when you pulled the rug out on, on all these families, all these communities, all these states with accepting this current economic policy, this race to the bottom, the neoliberal capitalism, where humanity, you're just, you, you are a factor of the economy, you, in, you as an individual. I, I read an article recently about how politics is absolutely devoid of statesmen and stateswomen in the sense that so many politicians now are just there about winning. It's not about delivering social benefits. It's not actually about achieving material benefits for people. It's about how you triangulate, how you can get the money, get the information to the people. And it's, it's just about winning elections, winning elections and, and whatever it takes to win election. And it doesn't even matter if you're delivering the goods or not, or what is the point of getting in there? It just advance your own, your ego and, and to try to rise up into this Babylonian system and uh, just get the, uh, the most sought after seat of power to, to not use it for good. It, it's, it's mind numbing. And getting back to this document is that they also are looking at progressive taxation too. And they're, they're really saying that those who have more should be expected to pay more. And they even go into at this, this point within agricultural consolidation well, in paragraph 244, where they say, we favor reform of tax policies, which now encourage the growth of large farms, attract investments into agriculture by non-farmers seeking tax shelters and inequitably benefit large and well-financed farming operations. 
Lower tax rates on capital gains have stimulated farm expansion and larger investments in energy-intensive equipment and technologies as substitutes for labor. And changes in estate tax laws have consistently favored the larger estates. All of these results have demonstrated that reassessment of these and similar tax provisions is needed. And so moreover, to support a progressive land tax on farm acreage to discourage the accumulation of excessively large holdings. I mean, I, I hear this and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm so puzzled because this is happening in the eighties and they are presenting themselves as the moral ethical center of religious thinking in the United States. And of course, the Democrats abandoned their New Deal roots to become new Democrats in the form of Reaganism. And then under Clinton and Obama even bragged that he's a Reagan Republican. Uh, so it, it's, it's just, we've gone so far right. And the system's breaking down right now. And I think we can bring it back if we recenter our polit politics into delivering material benefits for those least among us so we can develop this this community of, of, in a just economy. COVID, COVID just laid bare the fact that we were, the house was on sand, be it healthcare, particularly healthcare. And in my opinion, the education system, the K through 12, you know, when they went to distance learning, in my opinion, we just should have spent whatever billions it would have taken to safely keep the kids in school. Because the pressure on, you know, if you were a central worker at a gas station at eight bucks an hour, and, and now you lost that place for your kid to be, you can't be home working within the school. And that effect, as I mentioned, you know, just by short time working as a substitute paraeducator, you, you truly see the impact. These kids are coming in, don't even know how to hold a crib. And all the bean counters that have been trying to say, oh, we can just stretch the supply chain so thinly and so that we can have just-in-time services, right. whether it be hospitals or logistical supply chains, or even, oh, you don't need that many teachers and nurses in school, right. things like that. So the smallest little disruption can have cataclysmic consequences for everyone in the system based on this neoliberal adoption that so many people in the last 40 years in, in leadership on, in both parties have adopted. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. And in, in paragraph 318, they talk about a national economic policy hmm. and that concept of a national economic policy, I've never seen in my lifetime. There's, there's a bunch of it. It's just broken little pieces here and there. Let's all try to get our little, little legislation amendment in there but a national coherent policy that talks about everything from energy, food, water, infrastructure, transportation, communication, healthcare, education. And so in, in paragraph 318, here it is. In an advanced industrial economy like ours, all parts of society, including government, must cooperate in forming national economic policies. And that includes taxation, monetary policy, high levels of government spending, and many other forms of government regulation. And a modern economy without government interventions of th this sort is inconceivable. Yet here we are, right? Right. Yeah, now we can write inconceivable, but, for, but yeah, it's kind of like sci-fi. Yeah, we couldn't conceive of the aliens landing, but then they show up, right, in the movie, you know, but like the War of the Worlds. And, you know, there was people, again, the church, the church spoke up. It, the church played its role there. Again, a highly progressive 
document, even, and we weren't even using it to a progressive back then, which is kind of interesting, but it, it, it based on, again, it's, and it's all based on, it's like a tree, if you will. And the roots of the tree is again, the church's understanding or belief, core belief, literal in Christianity, that we all part of, of Christ, that all human life is sacred. And, and, and of course that leads to other social issues, which have been used, I think, to divert people's focus, kind of play, I call play like a fiddle in a culture wars. So you'll see a spiritual tools. I'll talk about that's how they come to the teaching on abortion. And so if you come to the church and to its teachings to get your point of view validated, you might not get your ticket punched, you know, it's like just be, you know, wow, you know, you pick and choose. But in this case, what we're talking about, it's uh, the sacredness of life of humanity uh, that, and that Christ being he's among us in the workplace, which we've talked about in the past. It's, uh, it's the, the greatest form of cooperation, greatest form of interaction. You'll end up spending more time in a day at work than with your family. You come home four hours maybe, and you're in bed, eight hours of sleep. If you're lucky, you're up, you go back to work. And the church talks about that, the need for leisure time, for vacation, for that part of humanity. And I just have one more point to bring up on yes. this as well. It, it, this idea of the ethical analysis of the U.S. economy is determined on how we treat the poor and vulnerable. And so it, it says in paragraph 319, the impact of national economic policies on the poor and the vulnerable is a primary criterion for judging their moral value. National economic policies that contribute to building a true commonwealth should reflect this by standing firmly for the rights of those who fall through the cracks of our economy, the poor, the unemployed, the homeless, the displaced. And being a citizen of this land means sharing in the responsibility for shaping and implementing such policies. And that is my takeaway. Currently, I think you and I have come together to address these things that we are failing under these criteria. And, and we're going to continue doing our part and doing the best we can to to try to change the direction. Right. And again, not only uh, uh, those who fall through the cracks as families and individuals, uh, but communities and states, uh, because in my lifetime, you know, at 66 with the trade agreements where neoliberal capitalism, one of its three legs, in my opinion, globalism devastated complete states. So I mean, where do we come up with even the term, the Rust Belt? Oh, and you and I are both familiar with that part of the world yeah, from our family background. For anyone who does read this in the future as well, they do focus a lot on the role of everyone in the world and the international policies that we should be adopting and asking ourselves one single question, how does our economic system affect the lives of people, all people? And it, it goes into even third world debt and famine and starvation, rising military expenditures. Is, is all going to have consequences in the future of everyone living in this planet. So with that, John, America's child care crisis and Catholic social teaching, do you want to talk a little bit about why you wanted to focus on this article? Well, yeah, I began with, I was looking at the, the budget resolution, which is like the 
it, it's not a bill, it, it so it hasn't been, it hasn't even gone that far, but it, it's emotionally referred to it almost as a bill. And the Biden administration gave it the term to build back better. Uh, my question is, it says that the child care portion of this agenda conflict to a degree with the church's teaching on work and labor, because does it truly support the, the understanding of the church that the family is the basic unit of society and from that everything else develops you know the the clan the tribe the nation state be it uh totalitarian authoritarian or representative democracy our flawed version of that but we still you know uh, we shouldn't take it for granted there's people living in far worse conditions than that have no voice sometimes it's just little apathy that gets us here. So, but then I found an uh, article in uh, the October uh, issue of America. It's a Jesuit magazine on culture and politics. Always controversial then. And they do a very good job of um, presenting a lot of different sides on old, on old things. So I came across this article and like I mentioned earlier, the America's Child Care Crisis and Catholic Social Teaching it's by assistant professor of theology, Katie Ward at the Jesuit Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And she, she does mention that both in the budget resolution under Biden and proposals by uh, Mitt Romney, that there is some uh, pay payments, literally some financial support for families if they provide childcare in home if they do it themselves. But the question will be for low income or people in stress, will that still be enough to allow one of the parents to provide that early child upbringing it at their home? And again, the church's teaching is, and I don't think it stresses as much, but certainly going back earlier, the church's teaching is that typically that would be the mother's role. But it, I would call that a deal breaker because we, you know, times change. And the bishops in 86 called that we have to look upon things with realism and get certain social conditions we're not going to change, but we can improve. So a stay at home and working parents should earn the same under both those plans in Aromnium and Biden. And we have to understand, we have to look at child cheater, child rearing pumps an unmeasured amount of economic support to the system. And the system, of course, looks upon it as providing ideal workers, but the Catholic social teaching, the Catholic teaching, obviously, would never look upon raising children to be another cog in a wheel. And in this article, there's this great tension between this ideal worker versus what Catholic social teaching is yes. all about. And let me read really quickly. For far too long, employers in the United States have expected every worker to fit the mold of an ideal worker. And workers have tried their best to meet these impossible standards. Yet the ideal worker cannot be further from the view of working humans found in Catholic anthropology. And it goes on saying Catholics believe that needing care is part of every human life and all of society is responsible for making sure vulnerable people are cared for. And living for and with others can be challenging, but it is one of the best and most most precious things we can do. And for many people, 
raising children will be a major way they live out the human calling. Mm -hmm. So you bring it back to the fact that we're in an economic system that has a downward pressure of being able to create families formation because everyone is so in debt and so living in economic precariousness. And yet some of the, the greatest callings of people is to have the, the family cycle of having children and watching them grow and nurturing them. And we have this opportunity right now to, to pass this historic, this historic act to help with childcare and you know, hopefully we got to put our, put our hopes in it and our prayers, but we also have to be pushing our politicians to do more. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up, the, of the idea that the ideal worker, yeah, I'm actually think of, uh, going all the way back to the sixties, Mario Savio, um, the fr uh, free speech movement, the cogs in the wheel speech famous, you know, that at some point, uh, all we can do is throw ourselves upon the cogs of the wheel. Well, neoliberalism made us the cogs in the wheel. You know, it's, we came we got to throw ourselves upon ourselves up, but the church's teachings are the family of the basic unit of society. That the view of the family, not the individual is the basic unit of society is not just a call for families to receive support. It makes a deeper claim about human nature. Humans are by nature vulnerable and relational, and the family is the most often the place we allow to be both of those things. You know, since our culture highly prizes economic self-sufficiency and family privacy, it might be strange to Americans to think about public policy supporting parents raising children, but it makes sense from a Catholic understanding of humans and the world. The view of that the family, not the individual, is the basic unit of society, is not just a call for families to receive support. It's a deeper claim about human nature. Humans are by nature vulnerable and relational, like I said. This article, it talks about studies that show economic pressures is one of the leading reasons families either don't have children or have less children than they wish. Again, we could, we could be one or the other, but we can't be both. You know, we could be this country of Judeo-Christian values, or we could be one that just looks upon the people again as the ideal worker, one that fits into the system. All right. Well, on that, thank you for watching episode five of Faith and Labor. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, and suggested guests for future shows as we seek to promote what Pope Francis described in Fratelli Tutti, a more just and fraternal world where love shatters the chains that keeps us isolated and separate. In their place, it builds bridges.